This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back to hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton, coming to you from the Reimagine Education Conference here in Philadelphia. Dan Loney, as we are talking with a variety of people from all around the world, looking at the world of education and how, as the title says, it is being reimagined uh, by a variety of different people in a variety of different areas. Coming up here in the second hour of the show, we'll continue to introduce you to a, a wide range of people involved in all aspects of education from around the globe. One of the interesting things uh, about education these days is the want to learn more about how people learn. That is one of the things which the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative is doing. Jeff Diefenbach is the associate director uh, and lead of that organization, and it's a pleasure to have Jeff joining us today. So uh, take us into that, because obviously we're in this unbelievable world of data where seemingly there is so much more we can learn about people uh, on an everyday basis. How is that impacting learning and, and education from your perspective? So two ways, really. First of all, we've got the challenge of what we don't know. So we can start to instrument people with things like heart rate monitors or EEG to measure electrical activity in the brain. We can measure galvanic skin response and pupil dilation. And conceivably, perhaps with AI and and natural language processing, we can start to learn something about how a learner is ready to learn based on their physical state. But that's in some ways the, the hard problem of the unknown. There's a lot that we know about learning that isn't currently put in place. Things like how we pay attention and what that means for the duration of a learning experience, for the difference between uh, receptive learning where learning kind of washes over me versus expressive learning where I'm producing something. We know a lot and practitioners don't put it into play. So you're very optimistic about where we could go with this in the next few years because of of some of the things that are out there already that, you know, uh, some variable level of research can, can open up doors on a variety of different levels. Yeah, sometimes I think, and it's joking, but maybe only half joking, that it's amazing we learn it all, given all the things we don't do right. Uh, what is your expectation, though, for education in general? Because as part of this conference, it seems like one of the, the important themes being discussed is how digital is playing a role and how it is changing education. How do you view it? Well, there's some of the simple things like e-learning where time and space no longer constrain my learning. I don't have to be in a physical place at 10 a.m. until 11.30 a.m. to learn. I can learn at my own pace in some cases. Other times I might be doing e-learning with a group, but I've saved myself the drive. Maybe it allows the course to be much larger and so the economics get better. Uh, Ultimately, the promise of digital is personalization. I I can't learn chemistry 401 if I'm a freshman, and I don't want to learn chemistry 101 if I'm a graduate student. So anything that we can do to personalize the learning experience, and a lot of that can be enabled, at least in theory through digital, is something worth doing. Those conversations, I'm sure, are taking place at places like MIT and and other universities around the the United States as to not only the understanding of of where this is going to go, but but how to best – affect the students positively in in that manner, correct? 
Absolutely. So one of the things that happens when you deliver learning at scale, and we do this through the MITx MOOCs and through OpenCourseWare, is that you can look at patterns that are successful and patterns that aren't, and you can guide the students who are doing unsuccessful patterns towards ones that are likely to serve them better. How much do you think this will play below the college level, into high schools, maybe even to middle schools, to give students the, the – they still have to be guided, especially at the younger ages, but – I think when you get to a certain point, there is a little bit of that, you know, understanding of things that you like, following the path of, of the of the areas that you are most interested in. Yeah. So when you get somebody at the college level, they've made a selection like biology or humanities. A, a third grader is probably never going to pick multiplication tables as a path that they want to go down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yet they need that. You they don't know my third graders. They would they would do that. That's right. Okay. Um, they they clearly are somewhere on the OCD spectrum <laughs> right. where I am. Right. Um, oh, they all line up so nicely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in readings the same way. It's hard for a student that young to really understand why the things that they're learning are valuable. But in terms of where ed tech plays. On the surface, you see more ed tech at the college level. Every student has a device. It's a laptop. It's probably a laptop and a tablet and a phone. But the actual learning experiences are probably more digital in the lower level ages, K through 12, because there are software programs that are helping them learn to read, that are helping them learn to do math, that are helping them with science or social studies. In the higher ed level, it's more the devices and ebooks or electronic versions of textbooks, and then the digital tools like Google Docs or Microsoft Office Docs. But there are actually fewer digital learning experiences at the higher ed level. So what do you think that means for the people like yourselves who are the educators at the college level? What, what, how, is, how is that going to change in your mind? Well, the notion of a lecture hall with 500 students and one faculty member spending 60 or 90 minutes is just outdated. Yeah. We don't learn that way. Uh, 60 minutes is too long. In fact, some would argue that six minutes is maybe much closer to the ideal. There's a logistics challenge. You've got to get faculty and students into a learning space. And if you had to do six 10-minute sessions a day, there's no way to make it work out. But you can break that time down and you can start to have small group interactions, maybe around digital tools within the 60 or 90 minute block. So to a degree, this is going to put more emphasis on what the student is able to do and, and the mindset that the student has when they're getting into that higher education pace or, you know, whatever path that they want to follow when they go to college. Yeah, there's a big move around competency and demonstrating what you can do. No sense having a student sit through an economics class if they could already ace the final. Yet colleges effectively do that. Now, maybe that student doesn't show up for class and they, they don't participate, but but if you have mastery, great, move on to the next thing. One of the areas that we've talked about on our show uh, during the week is uh, the fact of, of what the students are actually studying and whether or not that translates properly into into the real world when they go out and they're looking for a job. And, and there is a concern that some of the uh, of the paths of study in colleges are probably maybe outdated in terms of what they can actually prepare the student for. So from that perspective, one, do you agree with that? And two, does that mean that, that colleges really need to look at what they are teaching and, and how they are preparing the students for the real world? Totally agree with the statement. There was a famous Gallup study that showed that 96% of chief academic officers said they're preparing their students for the future, and 11% of business leaders agree. 
ultimately, I trust the business leaders. The things that they're looking for, creative thinking, problem solving, communication, collaboration, those skills serve you not just in the workplace, they serve you in life. That's what curricula should be built around. Bring in knowledge to those skills. Don't bring those skills into knowledge. Jeff Diefenbach is uh, Associate Director of the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So that being said, if the business leaders understand that the colleges maybe are not preparing students the way they should, does that mean, in your mind, that we are leading ourselves more towards public-private partnerships in the education sector, having that business-to-college relationship develop even more. So that'll be part of it. The other part of it will be a bypass of college as a place that companies go to get their talent. They won't disappear. Uh, Schools like Penn, 25 years from now, will most likely be delivering people into the workforce. But I think we're past peak degree. That is, the market share of the degree is only going to go down as companies get better at identifying people who've come through alternative paths. Does the cost factor also make it more uh, palatable for a lot of students to say, you know what, I have this knowledge, I have this competency, let me go right into the workforce. To a degree, it's almost like we see with college athletes leaving college after one year or three years going into the NBA or the NFL. My son, who's a finance major, his senior year of college, had his job offer and accepted it on September 9th, a day after classes started. I'm wondering why I'm paying a tuition bill this year. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Uh, Jeff Diefenbach uh, with the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative. So then, then how, do, how do the universities really change their mindset, change their philosophy? Because a lot of them are already concerned about dwindling educa- you know, levels of student body in their educations. They're concerned about being able to meet the quota numbers that they want to have on an annual basis so that they can you know, still be a profitable institution. So it's like any disruption. Some will adapt. They will change their own behavior. At MIT, OpenCourseWare was an effort 15 years ago to put all of the course materials online for free for anybody in the world who wanted them. MITx, which are the massive online open courses, those are about five years old. Same thing. You can do those for free. You can do them for a small fee for a certificate if you want. But those actions, in theory, disrupt and maybe disincentivize a student to come to MIT and learn on campus for tens of thousands of dollars a year. So far, that hasn't happened. And MIT, I think, is right to think, look, we can surf this wave for a while. But those experiences are going to change colleges. Some will go out of business. So does it also put the emphasis on the post-grad education piece for uh, a lot of people and for a lot of institutions to be able to bring these people back? MBA programs continue to be very important, as we've seen in the last few years. MIT, uh, the vice president of open learning there, Sanjay Sarma, talks about you don't get admitted to MIT in the future. You gain a membership to MIT in the future. And that becomes a place that you come back for lifelong learning. We're talking with Jeff Diefenbach of uh, MIT, their integrated learning initiative. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I think it's interesting that when we talk about these changes in education, obviously uh, the people that are the teens and the 20-somethings now are, are going through this kind of shift. But it'll be interesting, I think, in my mind, to see what their children do in 20 years in terms of their education and their understanding of, of what they need to do to, to really have an effective education experience through high school and through college. It's possible in 20 years. At 20 years, we are after the singularity, which is a Ray Kurzweil, a technologist and futurist, the point at which he said that humans and machines start to meld together. 
20 years is after that point, it may well be that there's a learning plug-in. And learning just is as simple as an upgrade, a software upgrade that gives you a capability you didn't have a second before. That might be those children you're talking about. Do you expect that, that – well, let me pose it this way. How much of an influence do you think that artificial intelligence will have on education in the years to come? Huge, and it's twofold. One, it will make education better. AI will help understand what a learner needs. It will help understand what's important out there, and it will make matches. The second side isn't so optimistic, though, and that's that AI will start to take jobs. And one of the reasons we learn is to have a job and to be able to provide for ourselves and our families. And I think AI, longer term, jeopardizes that. But And that, and that has been kind of the model of the education piece for such a long period of time of having that relationship between student and, and physical teacher in that location. So with AI being a, a, you know, a greater piece of that, you get an effective education experience, but you lose that personal touch to a degree. So... At Georgia Tech, they have a master's of science in computer uh, master of science in computer science. It's 100% online, and they have teaching assistants. Unbeknownst to the students, one of those teaching assistants was a bot. It was an AI, and it won uh, some awards from the students, and it was ranked as one of the better TAs. So. Having a relationship doesn't have to be with a human being. I think today it's the exception, maybe the rare exception, but. Uh, but, but it's certainly a possible future. But the understanding that we can have that type of great re relationship with uh, something that is not a human being, that's going to be something that's going to – I think it's still going to take a little while for people to accept that. Absolutely, and I certainly love the time that I spend with people. I'm imagining things like this will be nudging us around the edge, the way uh, a device in our home that we can speak to and it will give us information. So we'll see these things – work with us sometimes. Yeah. But boy, I still want to have a beer or a glass of wine with a friend or a group of friends, and I'm not looking to replace that with a robot. So you're not feeling like you're going to be replaced by Siri at, at MIT anytime soon? Well, I think I'm old enough that my chance of being replaced by AI, yeah. particularly given that I do a very non-routine job, yeah. I'm probably safe. My kids, I'm not so sure. Great meeting you, Jeff. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you for having me. Jeff Diefenbach, who's Associate Director of the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.